Hey everyone, this is Chad. I'm the founder and CEO of Mission.org and the host of Mission Daily, the number one podcast for accelerated learning. Mission Daily was recently selected as best of 2018 by Apple for a reason. In every single episode, you're going to learn actionable strategies that you can apply to your life to become healthier, wealthier, and wiser. Welcome back to the Mission Daily, your number one daily podcast for accelerated learning. In today's episode, I guess it all started with a text. I got a text from my buddy, Tonio, when he was in town. He was out in the Bay Area working on his business, doing some business-related activities. And when I got the text, I immediately told him, you got to come in. We have to get some Thai food, have some beers, and record an interview. That's exactly what we did. So why did we do that? So Tonio has some really interesting experience in law and the Marines and many different small business ventures that I wanted our listeners and I wanted you to hear. So whether that's getting robbed in his first business venture multiple times or learning how to transition from a legal job into a role as an in-house general counsel, there are a lot of lessons here. Antonio has gone on to found his own successful venture-backed company called Vimo. They're a client of the mission. We're super proud of them. And you're going to hear about that and way more in today's interview. Enjoy. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Mission Daily. I'm joined by a special in-studio guest, Tonio De Sorrento. Tonio, we first connected at the Investing in Ethics Summit out here in Silicon Valley. Do That's you remember? right. Yeah, I remember that. Having some happy was, hour drinks? It was a bonus. Yeah. We hung out there, did a little, like went to the after parties and everything, and getting connected with you, getting to know you a little bit better was awesome because I think your story is atypical. You have a really interesting personal life and business life. And so I wanted to bring you on to kind of relax, drink some beers and talk about it. All right, let's, I'm looking forward to this, Chad. Cool. So you mentioned before we kicked off the interview that your first business was not a technology venture. What, how'd you get started in business? Well, yeah, I'll share this one. I was in the Marine Corps, I was an artillery officer, and I was, but I was taken with entrepreneurship. And so I'm thinking, what do I know how to do? And, and how can I get going in business in an entrepreneurial way? I'm, I'm one of four, oldest of four. My mother had worked in a pizza shop when we were growing up. And I was really familiar with, I thought I was, pizza shops. So, were you helping out the with growing up? Were you no? She worked the there, and and uh, we eventually we lived like across the street from it. So I I saw I ate a lot of pizza. <laughs> I helped in that sense, all the burned ones. But no, so I, I hadn't worked in one before myself. But one of my brothers had experience working around food establishments, kitchens, and dining places, and so. I went out and, and bought a pizza shop and a going business in Connecticut with my brother and he general managed it. And we thought, you know, Hey, how hard could this be? You know, we're going right. to go, we're going to roll this up and, and, and we'll end up owning more. Like we'll, we'll yeah. get bigger with this. And, and wait real quick, how much diligence did you guys do? I mean, you, you make it sound pretty cavalier. Like I'm just going around buying pizza shops and everything. Like that's, that's a big chunk of change for anybody, right? Yeah, the answer is not enough diligence. Uh, <laughs> I would say I made a six-figure mistake on that. Um, thank goodness, you know, I made it in my in my twenties. Yeah, and I made it a huge mistake. I didn't do enough diligence. I didn't know what it even meant. I think a lot of people get a little lazy with that sometimes. An issue young men have maybe desperately want to do a thing, fall in love with their own plan, run off with it. So I was buying a, a business. Guilty. That, Guilty of that as well. Yeah. This is a business that was making money, but there's a lot of ways to run a small business. I was wanting to be a lawyer, get out of the Marines, become a lawyer. And that meant no cutting legal corners for me. You know, I couldn't do the pay me in cash. I'll uh, just take it all out of the register at lunch thing and, and dodge assorted taxes or obligations the way a lot of small businesses either have to do or, or do even if they don't have to do. They mm -hmm. just do it. And so competitively, I wasn't willing to do what it took to win at that. And I, I really underestimated what it would take and what the prior owner was really going through to be successful. So I knew he was making money, but it turns out my brother and I actually weren't willing to do what it took to make money at that. We weren't, we weren't the right people to run that business. And that was, that was an expensive lesson. We sold that one for a loss after two years. 
thank goodness for for both of us we both ended up able to do other things so in my case that was law i was went into private practice was there a tipping point or a moment where you and your brother whether it's late at night or some like horrendous unforeseen thing happens what was that moment like for you where you were like okay this is not for us like no more was there a moment like that actually yeah so this this goes to um the benefits of white collar work versus other work i think you know we got robbed often uh often T- tough town and uh it was in a tough town and i, I want to knock a particular street or city but <laughs> the uh Jeez. we underestimated the actual risk involved in running a business that's going to have cash in it or other things and, yeah you know and there's a reason those places are are cautious yeah sometimes with their customers and so it turned for me to a thing where oh man i could lose some money to oh gosh this is a terrible idea like we don't we don't need this you know enough yeah we, we can both like do other things and there's people who are like meant to succeed at this you know mm-hmm. and if we wanted to succeed we probably should have tried to succeed in a town where we knew everybody i mean this wasn't the town we grew up in so was there a hostile climate because you guys were from out of town and like you had bought this maybe local business like did you feel any hostility from the local yeah, yeah i would say it's not that the local business owners were loved and that we displaced a loved business owner it was that you know we didn't look like everybody in the neighborhood and gotcha. there was this assumption that you know look if you're going to rob somebody rob from them they'll be okay and and wow. maybe they were right honestly so you know i sit here today right went into private practice now i'm uh, another venture going and maybe there was something to that but we weren't willing to do what it took to succeed there but still though i think that the lesson i always like to share when people start asking about business or glance at how things are going now and say like oh it must be nice type thing because like you probably get that occasionally when you connect with people you haven't seen in a while or something like that where people glance at the surface level success or appearance of success whatever the case is and say like must be nice there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes. And I think that like that story that you're sharing about getting robbed often <laughs> is something that people don't know about. Like people don't know that business isn't a, an environment that's, you know, where you're encountering everybody that's patting you on the back. It's really rough. It can be really brutal. Like was that, how did you view that? And was that like an eye-opening experience to the world of business or what did getting robbed often kind of like teach you? I would say, you? yeah, top to bottom. I mean, bankers i had a business loan you know lawyers there was diligence involved the former business owner people you know insurance agents everything involved with that business the other employees that we had that we inherited i was astounded over and over the way that people could be really one-sided in the way they dealt with every other person around them so you know and again it's i should say my brother adriano is the one who had to deal with all the really hard stuff day to day i'm really fortunate that i was not there most days when bad things happened but yeah i mean i was coming out of the marine corps you think like oh that's tough you know what it's tough like being on a sports team's tough i wasn't a wartime marine i wasn't in some war so you know we're hard on each other but that means like we're hard on each other because we care about each other we want to be great when the time comes to be tested right and we're on the same team and so people yell or even if they're violent i mean they, everything they're doing is really about making you great and being on the same team and when you go to a place in small business it's not like that you know, there are people who will for five or ten thousand dollars yeah completely you know do things that you think man why would you do that to somebody why would you treat somebody that way for an amount of money that Will not change your life and yet they did and that was my introduction to you know, the private sector like wow i gotta i can't trust the same way yeah even people who are working for me can't trust the same way yeah much less counterparties and i, I think something you brought up there sparked the thought where it's very easy especially in silicon valley to fall in the trap of thinking like private sector is great. Private sector is where it's at. The public sector, they're the ones that are behind. They're the ones that don't really understand things. But I think one of the lessons for me that the military taught me was just how good a public sector organization can be in terms of operations, in terms of filtering people and retaining good people. Because for all its faults, when I left the military, I was kind of, and I got my first taste of the private sector, which was like, I launched an entertainment app and two weeks later I got a cease and desist letter that was like not 
warranted by any stretch of the imagination, that first taste of private sector life was almost, it was pretty brutal, right? I mean, it's like, I, I didn't expect it at all. So how, what are your thoughts on like public sector, private sector? How do we bring more compassion to both? Because I feel like the private sector is kind of, yeah, it's brutal. Like, does it have to be this way? What do you think? I think within organizations, it doesn't have to be brutal in yeah. the same sense. I think you, the reason that you know the Army or the Marines felt the way they did for us was we had a common why mm -hmm. with every other person there. We'd all opted into something. And I later experienced in, in other private sector organizations that same kind of buy-in, not the exact same kind of buy-in, but sure. a level of buy-in to where everybody I wasn't why suspect, suspecting the people across the table, you know, or, or down the hall from me of, of you know, uh, doing me wrong. I, I was, I wasn't feeling like I, I had to look over my shoulder. Sure. At a law firm, for example. Whereas, yeah, small small business was extra extra tough, and 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 I think it was that the people there. I don't even know if they wanted to be there. You know, they were there because they had to be, and they were stuck in that place and they didn't have anything in common with each other and there wasn't anything sticking them together. Yeah. If you look back at golden ages of uh, local business in the United States, it's actually times like post-war. Mm -hmm. Everybody's a veteran. Everybody can kind of check each other out. Yep. And knows they got to show a little respect for each other. Yeah. You know, we don't have that today. So it's, it's tough. But I think that it, private sector organizations can look to create something similar, you know, with the buy-in that it, public sector people pay you with that, that, feel good yeah <laughs> they pay you in goodwill in that buy-in so I, I hope i can be a part of organizations that have that i think that and we we you know, we both know of yeah a number of them that try really hard for that and i think a lot of them achieve that and in a way that's overlooked by the press and by the media like if i think about large technology companies that are bashed by the media like two come to mind where people's perception of these companies are and i'll just yeah go and say it but google and palantir they're great examples where people's outside perspective of these organizations has been so tarnished and distorted by the media to where if you go out and meet people that work at either of these places, you encounter one amazing person after the other. And like, I, I don't yeah. say that. And they all swear by each other. Like, you know, they're, they're loyal to each other. And I think other. about, yeah. even if I think about like so many of the clothes, we just had baby Grayson in here. So many of the clothes and the toys and things that baby Grayson had, like, we didn't buy them. They came as donations from Steph's coworkers at Google. Like we were literally showered with gifts from strangers. The nicest words that anybody has generally, I shouldn't say anybody, but some of the nicest words and compliments that I've ever received in the world of business came from almost strangers that I like I've met at these like large technology companies. And I think where, you know, we're living in a media climate where it's so easy to demonize people, but it's very hard to get out meet people face to face because what you might f encounter is that you know there are a lot of organizations out there that have succeeded in building these like really unique cultures of compassion of like caring and everything so you're out here you're in silicon valley because you know you're building an awesome startup and it's succeeding it's turning into I don't want to put words in your mouth but like a really successful business what brought you out here and yeah what are you up to I'm doing the tour, talking to potential investors and, and some potential customers. So this is still a great place for the hearing of ideas and the sharing of ideas. And and even though there's money all over the world, I don't. I've not seen a density yeah. of of uh, people who are interested in new things and in building things like I've come across in this area. And so you're out here. You come out here pretty often, right? Like what do you would say, like every couple months, or yeah. Every couple months. And, yeah. and that's as an East Coast based person. And so you're based in Crystal City, which is like an up and coming area. It's it's on a lot of people's radars more recently because, you know, the Amazon headquarters and other things. But yeah, what's going on there? And why did you choose to found and build your company, your technology company there? Yeah, so we're right near there in Arlington, Virginia, Roslyn, adjacent neighborhood, basically. And I'm really fortunate. You know, I got out of the Marines. I went to law school in D.C., based myself and my family there. Georgetown, right? Georgetown Law. Yeah. Based myself and my family there. And when I had to work in other cities, I actually just commuted to the other cities. So I've lived locally the whole time, always hoping, man, I hope I get to have a short commute one day or not have to go out of town for work so much. And the the business I'm working, that I'm building now is an education 
in higher education. And that's just a, such a good area for those businesses. And there are so many seasoned executives locally that, and even potential customers locally, that it was a no-brainer to put the company there. So my co-founders and I were all already local. We found, again, yeah, it's just a great ecosystem, particularly for what we're doing in higher ed. So another thing that I was thinking about that yeah, the thought just jumped in my head that I think is really valuable for anyone listening. I think that your co-founders that you selected with your company are unique. And I, I say that, don't want to jump into too much like personal details here, but you have four kids, you know, your co-founder, Bill, I don't want to like get it wrong. How many kids does Bill have? Bill's at nine. <laughs> yeah, kids. nine. And I, I can remember talking to him and thinking about, I, you know, we have one, our first child, and when I was talking to him the first time on the phone, I just paused a second because he was telling me that and sharing me that. I was just like, how, how are you doing this? How are you co-founding a company, basically leading enterprise sales, essentially, and balancing nine kids? So how does Bill do that? How do you do that? Well, how does that even happen? I'll speak to Bill. I mean, Bill, he's got a, Bill Brasso's got a great wife who really supports him. So I feel like we, be, we get the benefit here of, of their team as a family. His kids are pretty understanding about stuff. And and then Bill has really no boundaries on himself. I've never seen a person who can endure like <laughs> the travel and crazy hours that he can yeah. while reserving good temperament and waking time for his kids. So he might come back to the office at like 10 at night, you know, or be in the office on a weekend, but he'll be doing it at a time that doesn't disrupt whatever they got going on at home. And he he's the most reliable person I'm like, look, I need somebody in whatever city <laughs> tomorrow or next week. And it's a terrible time for most of us to travel. He'll make it work. He, but he, I would say, you know, he's, his career bills, he started in financial aid, 11 years financial aid officer, but then he went into sales, high red sales. And so his career has been travel and, and sell, selling and he and his family are built around that. I really respect what he, how he's done it because it, it is different. I mean, they have a lot of children and just the one, <laughs> just one wife. Um, so Jane and so Bill, yeah, Bill and Jane, they're really impressive. I, I respect how well they're organized. I think in their case, it's process and organization. So they got a routine and they make that routine work and they, those kids are born into it there at yeah. this point. Speaking for Bill, is, you know, <laughs> it's not fair, but I'm speaking for him. In my case, yeah, four children. And um, I also benefit from a lot of help so I, I would say in my case, I'm divorced. I've shared custody with my kids, with their mother. And I try to concentrate my out-of-town travel when I don't have them. And I depend on flexibility basically from their mother to like give me extra time when I am there. Mm -hmm. So that that works similar to Bill. We were a one-income family before, you know, before I started Vimo and continue to be. And so I also get a lot of help. And then I would say my, my family and partner, we, we just have like a lot of, a lot. Of, I have a lot of support and a lot of help. And then I think part of it is the kids. So I would say if, if you look at Bill's and my kids, he's got nine, I got four, and you cold called them today. You say, I'm going to cold call each, all 13 kids. The one's old enough to talk. One of them in each family is going to be wearing a Vimo shirt today. Like they, <laughs> they're a company t-shirt basically. Like yeah. they all buy into what we're doing actually. So they, they come by the office and they like play around and they feel like they're part of it. Yeah. So I think, because there's two things. Like one is the labor of kids and how do you integrate or how do you share the work of a family and just driving people around in the suburbs sure. to all yeah. the activities that kids are expected to do these days. But the other is how do the kids feel loved and good about it? Mm -hmm. You know, And I think it's not like we're all in the army and deployed six months at a time. Like we have pretty great lives as much as we're busy with the work. You know, it's first world put stuff. Put in perspective here. Yeah, very yeah. first world problems. And and then I think we, I kind of watched this with Bill, but, you know, we keep the kids excited about what we're doing. And I think that goes for everybody at the company. You know, we're, we're some of the more prolific people there, but <laughs> I think everybody has buy-in from their families for what they're doing. And I think it's really important at a cause-based business, mm -hmm. you know, and if you want everybody to have buy-in, you, you got to have buy-in from their families. Yeah. You can't have them going home, getting in trouble because they worked late or they're going to be looking for another job. So creating that culture though and getting buy-in is something that takes years. You know, it's essentially like there's very exciting things going on with your business right now, but that is the result of decades of preparation, lining things up, having the pizza shop bets that maybe don't quite pan out, going to the next venture, 
again and again and again without lack of enthusiasm, basically, to, you know, paraphrase an old quote, you are here because you've prepared. What are some more, like, take us back to your general counsel, deputy counsel days where, you know, you moved on from the first venture, you moved into a technology business. And yeah, how did you, what was that transition like? And then how did you build the launch pad for Vimo today? You know, so yeah, starting off private practice, I, I'm in I'm in a fancy law firm, and I'm getting exposed now at this fancy law firm to like great investors and great companies, and the teams behind them, and I started to realize like you know these are these people are special. They're not they're not that different from me, but they're right. special, and they're they know what they're doing. There and and there's there's a range of quality among all these company teams I was seeing, and I thought, boy, the first thought I had was just I should just go do that. And I think that was premature. I mean, the important thing was I should I need to get great at something so that I could pay my own way if I end up in one of these businesses. Do you think the pizza shop kind of taught you, like, I don't know, maybe for lack of a better word, like humility to look at these and other companies and say, like, take a step back and say, wait, there might be some things going on behind the scenes that I don't know yet. Or what was that? Definitely humility as to um, humility as to whether I was some kind of undefeatable winner, you know, yeah. I had had basically a winning, a winning streak at life to that point. <laughs> and, uh, that was a blow number one, um, at the pizza shop. But the, I, I would say separately patience in, in terms of doing a deal or committing to something as a person, I wasn't going to fall in love with yeah, some business idea and then like immediately quit my job and go do it. And I wasn't going even to like switch law firms or something without doing the, basic diligence. And that's the kind of thing that I was way to my detriment, you know, I was too impatient for as a younger person and learned the hard way. So certainly diligence and wanting to understand stuff better and holding myself to a higher standard. I think quality of work also like 85% solution is the, is the norm in the Marine Corps. That's what they teach you at least, you know, like violently execute some plan that you can get as close as possible to write, but don't over-engineer it. And law is kind of the opposite a lot of time in a big law firm, at least. They don't call a big law firm. Nobody calls a big law firm if they don't mind if you make mistakes. Like, right. You know, these billing rates, you guys better perfect this yeah, nonsense, completely. right? And as a junior person there, my job was just looking for all the imperfections, really. Nobody was seeking my sage uh, <laughs> advice on, you know, what, what direction to do things. I was, I was in the room sometimes, but I was doing a lot of the paperwork, just learning. I think but my takeaways were that, I needed some kind of real skill, like a real business skill, which led me to reinvest in law, actually. So in my head, I, in my heart, I was halfway, as soon as I got to a law firm, I was already thinking, oh, I should be an entrepreneur. I love entrepreneurial things. Family and law school debt aside, there's just the matter of like, what value would I bring to a startup? Like, mm -hmm. why do they need me? And I, so I went, anyway, I, I went back and just rededicated to being great at law after my first year or so there, I realized, man, I'm not just, I'm just not God's gift to like startups. I need to be great at something that somebody would pay for. And then I'm valuable. Then I, I can pay my own way and be a part of something. And it's not some favor that they let me into their company. Yeah. And they can afford to pay me because I can show them that I'm going to make or save them more money than I cost. So th th what I did next was actually double down on trying to get decent at law. I'm not sure that if you polled all of my former supervisors, I, <laughs> I was truly great at that, but I, I got better and I improved because I tried hard. And what I found was that opened doors. So being good at something and standing out at something, that'll open a door way yeah. more than just knocking at it a lot and saying, but I really want to come in. Yeah. Just be great. They come find you. Yeah. Right. And there's going to be opportunities too, that are beyond what you can imagine too, that just come up by nature of showing proof of work for lack of a better phrase, basically of like proving it and putting that out there getting that like lead generator working, whether it's your skills or whatever, people are going to come find you. So yeah, people say stuff like it's not what you know, it's who you know. And that's not the story. I think the story is it's who knows you yeah, and what they know you for. Yeah. And it may be they, they know you for what you know. I mean, they you have, but yeah, it's about treating people right. Yeah. Being a decent person to people, you know, life's long. And yes, I loved, I, I mean, I, that's another thing I picked up, like based on the, a, an improvement on the pizza shop tier you know, burn strangers when every time you can behavior people had <laughs> big law was relationship driven, right? At least my, I was in a practice that was relationship driven and doing lots of finance and financial product development, 
lot of biting your tongue, right? As just you, yeah, you never or know just where. Realize, the... like, we're gonna see these people. Look, if if we succeed, yeah. If if you're a criminal defense lawyer and you succeed, your client never wants to see you again. <laughs> Nothing against you. It was a terrible traumatic thing. They were accused of a crime. You know, they're in, in court. If you're a good finance lawyer and you're helping people get money for their business, they're going to grow. They're going to make more money. That's great. That's great. Treat each other great. There'll be more opportunities. They'll they'll send you their friends and you get to be part of these happy things that are going on Mm -hmm. with them in their lives. So I I felt like that getting better at law, being patient with and investing in people and relationships, even as tired as I was, just keep investing in that. Those, Those were two of the bigger things. And then understanding the market because, you know, if you want to be a task based person and just have be able to do jobs based on your skills then you're an entry-level employee somewhere in startups every startup that's successful even if it's not a venture-backed type business is going to grow at a pace that that will outpace you basically they will outpace you as an employee if you can't think about the big picture if you can't see it Mm -hmm. and so i just i tried to, to invest a lot of time in understanding the big picture in the industries where i was interested in working and knowing the players, the investors, the regulators, the, just the market dynamic from the legal perspective so that I could be a strategically valuable person. And that led to multiple offers to join clients as a lawyer. So how are you going about acquiring that information, acquiring that knowledge? Are you just using the internet? Are you buying magazines? Are you buying books? Combination of everything. What are you doing? You know, one, well, I was lucky in one case, in one sense, I was at a big law firm and we can see a lot of what goes on. We can't disclose it but we can learn it. So I learned a lot just from watching like, wow, you know, that partner assigned like five new clients in that space. Yeah. What else are they doing? How are they doing? Or, you know, that's a hot space. Wow. I should look that. That's a new niche. I should look that. I could look into that. Yeah. Or or I should reach out to the partner and ask if I could do some work on it. That's on the one side. On the other side, actually, this was during the ascendancy of Twitter. And so people used to subscribe to special newsletters all the time. And it would be about like, which newsletter would you buy? And for lawyers, there was a bunch of different ones. And for for bankers and finance people. Yeah, law had all kinds of like esoteric, highly priced newsletters, right? For a, a long time. I think they still do. Yeah, right? There's a bunch that are still out there, but you know, and occasionally it's worth it. And of course, big firms pay the subscription fee so we can get them. But like, which one should I click on? You know, yeah. how do I know? And I went through and felt like uh, I, I built a decent uh, list of people to follow on Twitter. And got all my news from that. I didn't start participating as a tweeter right away, but I was <laughs> I was learning pretty quickly and and so that helped a ton actually and it you 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 know this. I mean, you, you follow people sometimes on social media and that's not a Twitter's an okay place to follow strangers. You can feel like you know them over time. So mm-hmm. it comes in even then like as you're thinking strategically, you know, every business is really about people. In the end, these things all come down to people of different kinds. They might be rich people or powerful people, but they're people. And I feel like I gleaned a lot of insight just even from what kind of things people curated on there. And again, this is a, sure the ascendancy of Twitter and also before anybody was really guarded on it. So I just learned a ton. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure there's some new thing. There's new some new equivalent of that today, you know. Educationtrends.com, educationtrends.com. I mean, let's, yes. let's be honest. I'm just kidding. So t- yeah, just full disclosure, Tony O sponsors Education Trends. Dot com. I won't believe it anymore, but I think like, you know, Twitter and like, sorry, that was corny, but other niche media sources and channels of information are a really interesting place. And so many of them now, the prices and the barriers to entry are dropping or else they're free. There's a lot of opportunity about like out there. So one of the thing that's kind of fascinating, and this isn't a praise of anybody or a knock on anybody, but in any given space, in any given yeah. niche that you're interested in or that a listener is interested in breaking into, there's going to be two sets of people in it. And there's going to be the set who are who are talking and like they're, they seem like they're the ones spreading all of the news and, and talking. But those are often the people who aren't tied down with execution. Right. So like a, it's a, a little, startup that's yeah. on every panel because they don't have any clients. Right. And the ones with clients are busy as heck. Yes. Yeah. Fulfilling on that, implementing. It's really hard to do. And so curious i mean if you're just trying to like become known and get to know people you can go to the ones who really have nothing going on and they don't have clients and if they're busy if they're on every panel and doing all this stuff you know they're not busy making money right you can those are great paths to get into things yeah. I, I used to help people like that for free as a lawyer knowing that they would say hey tony help me out he's a nice guy the ones who i would help who were heads down executing i knew 
would kind of keep that proprietary. Like, yeah, uh, don't want to be small. My legal yeah, my lawyer is pretty good. I'm not going to tell anybody, <laughs> you know, forget them. They'll, they'll have to get their own lawyer. Yeah. And they want, you know, anybody else might compete with me. So, you know, and I guess what you want to be is the one who's busy implementing for your clients and making money, but breaking in, it's it, into any niche, it seems, or any group, it seems like going to the ones who aren't so tied down might be a way to do that. Yeah. So how did you make the jump from the law firm to your first business venture? Or I, I, not your first business venture, but you get yeah, the point. Like, yeah. An in-house job. Yeah. Yeah. As a lawyer. Really fortunate. Well, so I, I started thinking about, boy, do I really want to be a partner at a law firm or or do I still have this startup bug? Because I had gone hardcore into being a decent lawyer or improving at law at least for a couple of years. I said, yeah, you know what I do? I, I, w- I want to go, but I I just want to own part of one and be a team member and um, I'll do my part of the team. And so I actually talked, I mentioned this to my clients. I said, hey, only the ones where I thought I would actually want to work, you know, not giant I had some client at a client with like more law lawyers at it than my law firm had. You know, it was like a giant bank. I wasn't looking to just move my practice into a another skyscraper, you know, with different bosses. I was looking to join something with a mission that was going to build and work for inspiring people. And so I, I mentioned this to a number of clients, and a couple of them came back with offers of employment. So I got to pick from among a couple of my clients who wanted to give me a chance as mm-hmm. a young in-house lawyer. I'll, before you ask another question, I'll, I'll say in-house practice is very different from law firm practice in that in a law firm, there's always some senior lawyers, always somebody who knows more, who's older, who can help and who can answer a question. And you go to some little startup with no legal budget and it is not like that. And so the one challenge I had that I wasn't really prepared for was the isolation of in-house practice and how I, it turns out I wasn't really ready to go be the top legal person mm-hmm. at a startup right away. I ended up going to SoFi where I was the number two lawyer, but I was working for a person who I considered a mentor. And even though we had very different practice backgrounds, I got to transition into business with a little bit of support on the law side. I didn't have to completely act like I knew all the law or make all the legal calls myself as a young person. Yeah, because I think that the pressure for younger general counsels or the first attorney in to a new place doing a new thing in uncharted waters, that's substantial, right? Because you're like the success of the business is not, it's, it's almost on your shoulders. It, it'll feel like that yeah. certainly to them. I mean, every I guess every function, everything depends on every function, you know. Sure. But I yeah. think what law, the, what law people have in their minds that others don't is the apprenticeship nature of the law. Mm-hmm. I think if you look at any important corporate function there's an apprenticeship nature to it and people learn it from other people and they learn it over eight to ten years and that's when you have like a fully ripe professional who can be both tactical and strategic and who can hire Mm. and who can manage up and manage down and do all the things they need to do in their functions but in law it's very explicit so you know it's your first year an associate then you're whatever they have all their ranks and they have their formal improve you know promotions by year and so we come out of a law firm just knowing like, man, I'm not ready. <laughs> I, I wouldn't have been the boss at that law firm for four more years. There's no way I should be the boss here yet. And uh, I know that some people are exceptional and, and can do that stuff, but I don't think I was exceptional that way. I really benefited from, yeah, more mentorship to continue my training basically. So as you got more mentorship at SoFi, what was the next leap and what was the next impetus for your next jump? So I was at SoFi and SoFi refi- was at the time, focused on refinancing federal student loans. And at, at the time, nobody even knew if that was legal. I mean, nobody had ever done it. So banks were afraid to try it. There were other startups trying it. And I was watching them. I was thinking, you know, you can always see the warts you know, mm-hmm. close on yourself. And you can see all the faults in your own creaky little startup versus yep. the other ones who look fine from the outside. Yep. In fact, if they have a nicer website. They look way finer, you know, or a better, a better PR <laughs> yep. operation, regardless of what else they got going on. I mean, I talked to investors a lot about this because when I talk to potential investors in my company, they always say like, why would you ever walk out of SoFi? In that it was succeeding when I was there and it was right. succeeding when I left and I, I liked my job. The people there taught me a ton. And so I, I what I watched, what dif- distinguished that business from its competitors and 
there were two things that I think that they did really, really well. And I would advise for anybody, but it's what gave me the confidence to jump. I, in private practice, I had, I'd worked with ideas like the one my business is now. And I always thought the ideas were cool, but I'd never seen anybody really win with them. I can get to SoFi. The idea is no less radical at SoFi that they had than my idea. And they had, first of all, a, a mature, functionally capable management team. As a young startup, they went and spent what they had to spend to get a real capital markets person, a real credit person, a real lawyer. This is a lending business. So those are crucial. Real right. marketers. They did all this stuff so that they could be viewed as a peer institution right. by investment banks and rating agencies, get cheaper money than the government and give it out to their borrowers. So already doing something risky. And a lot of the core management team then sounded like they had what you refer to as like the eight to 10 years of like apprenticeship. They yeah. had that under their belts. Even more. Yeah. They were good enough to hire to make more people like them. And they had basically been running these deals for other institutions, similar kinds of deals, similar value, come to SoFi. And it's like the email distribution on a SoFi financing looked like the email distribution on any big bank financing because it was like the same people we had mm -hmm. and we, we used the same vendors and they all recognized us. And so that let SoFi scale at a pace that nobody can clone. You can't clone that. You know, you have to submit, you have to decide like, am I going to, am I going to insist on clogging up the top of my company with a bunch of co-founders who have the same exact backgrounds? Or am right. I going to like move them out of the way and get in really diverse, functionally capable managers who can lead these scalable parts of the company. But so SoFi needed money, needed a lot more money than the company had. And the way to get it from a bank, you know, with a stamp from rating agency was to look like a peer institution. And as mm -hmm. a startup, your company just isn't going to earn that as an institution itself for years. Right. They did that. And I thought that that made a huge difference. And it actually unlocked things like money from the capital markets that their competitors were able to copy, just not fast enough. The other thing was focus. So you're finance student loans. I mean, whose student loans did you refinance? And if you succeed in that, what should you do next? Find different borrower, you know, different refinance customers, or should you sell your existing customers more of the same, more stuff? Mm -hmm. And so if I picked one customer and then decided that they would focus on cross-selling that customer. And that proved, I think, to be like key to their success also and to their the valuation that investors gave them. Mm -hmm. SoFi then had a reason to invest in a brand and invest in its customers to a degree that you just can't if you're transactional in nature. You know, if you're, you could be a refinance student lender and emphasize just how many refinancings you can do and take them wherever you find them. Mm -hmm. And I found that SoFi's competitors were too quick to do an unfocused partnership or an unfocused acquisition or unfocused campaigns to add customers. So... I thought about that and it actually stood, it jumped off the page as people would say, like I, I, it, I could, every time I looked left or right from where I was sitting at SoFi, I could see people saying what they, SoFi said and copying the products and copying the pricing, but just stri strategically doing it wrong. Right. And I was like, man, you know, as much as I respect everybody who's come before me in the business I'm working on, I think that they did, they were missing that also. They didn't have a management team. They had people who were smart or successful, but they were successful at other things. They didn't really have people who were successful at all the inputs to my business. I could recruit them. I'm old enough now to recruit them, mm -hmm. you know? And the other thing was focused, like, you know, and choosing the right customer. And I thought, you know, there's easy, it looks like there's easy money all over the place, you know, depending on your business and who you think your customer is. I have the discipline and patience to pick a customer and stick and, and focus on that customer and I'll I'll win I'll win. Like mm -hmm. I'll I'll sell my co-founders on it, I'll sell investors on it. Because by now you've acquired so much domain expertise and so much customer development is just like you're acquiring that by nature of your job. Every single interaction, every single conversation is like, yeah, probably what is it like is it crystallizing the pain point of the customers at this point? Like, do you know the problems of, you know, student student debt holders better than anybody at this point or like where where are you yeah, at? Yeah, I think I certainly knew the dynamics of equity and debt financings for all these financial services startups in, in all the education based education finance businesses. And so, you know, and, and a lot of people had come and gone in that space and I had kind of been there the whole time. So I yeah, I felt like I I, I knew others. I was known. We talked about like mm -hmm. others knew me and I treated people fairly. So 
we got that opportunity, but it was what gave me the confidence to go for it was uh, the why now right. behind it was team and customer. Yeah. And so how did you get the team? How did you get the customer avatar or figure out the demographic of customer that you could serve better than anybody else? Yeah. What was that process like? So team, I, I mean, I went out to every person I knew in my network and started saying like, who, who can do this? Now I'm really fortunate, you know, as a lawyer, you meet a lot of smart people like that. I have uh, one co-founder, Jeff Weinstein had been a client of mine, had had a startup of his acquired and then had worked with me at a couple other places and was at a private student loan consultancy, a credit consultancy. He's a PhD economist, brilliant guy. And I, I, I liked him. I trusted him. I knew he liked and trusted me. So I was like, okay, I can get Jeff, you know? And then the next was, where are we going to, the big things we needed, we needed legal and regulatory expertise. We needed credit expertise. We needed sales expertise and we need higher ed sales. Mm -hmm. And we needed operational expertise in terms of talking to students at schools and resolving problems they have. So went out looking for the uh, sales expertise and network delivered, you know, the network delivered bill. And it turns out that my mother, after her pizza shop days, had worked for Bill's mother in the financial aid office at George Mason University wow. in Virginia. So I grew up in upstate New York. My mom, we all like relocated down to Northern Virginia a number of years ago. And and so small world, not only did I know this guy, my co-founder Bill through professional circles, but I was able to check him out on a personal and family level. And and the last was uh, Renee, who we, look, every, I, I was like, I need this function filled and he has to be a star. And everybody came back with the same name. And I was really lucky. Sofi had tried to hire her. And the thing was, they were going to make our move. Mm-hmm. They're based in West Coast and she's based in Florida and has family there that she, you know, she wants to be near. And so that didn't work, but I was willing to put half the company in Florida. So after some courtship, we got Renee and that was co-founders here. And so that was really fortunate that, you know, that we got such great people and that, and, and today, you know, we've, we've all been through a lot now as a team and we really look out for each other. It's, I'm really fortunate to have that. I think I can't imagine having to do one of these businesses without a co-founder or two and in you- my case, three. Yeah. And you can't have a successful business without a shared history. Like a business isn't going to endure over the long term unless you have some shared history, like binding you together. Like you mentioned, even with Renee, like there's a courtship, there's a process of getting to know her and like, uh, you know, an accelerated pace, maybe like Sophie had already vetted her, but you took the additional time to get to know her. Right. And like, there are so many people that are in a rush to do everything these days. Do you think like patience is overrated? Do you think that what separates successful entrepreneurs is basically a lack of patience or, you know, for the successful ones, like it's basically like patience that helps them win or what do you think? This comes up for me a lot. It comes up for me in discussions, even strategic discussions with the company, because I think if your goal is to make money, maybe patience is bad. I don't know. Mm -hmm. There's people who can make money so quickly. They like lap me, you know, I meet them. They're at however many dollars, then I meet them. I see them a year later, they're at more dollars. Right. And, and they, they jump on trends really well and they're they're nimble. My goal here isn't to make a certain pile of dollars. My goal is to cause a certain kind of change in post-secondary education and to build a company that causes that and, and lasts through it mm-hmm. as the home of it. And so in company building, I absolutely think patience is a virtue and is way underrated. It goes to in any, I think a lot of the decisions at CEO level that you make, for example, or board of directors level in a company, they're about priorities that vary based on time. So you're kind of picking, am I going to prioritize the short term, the medium term, the long term, or short or long, basically. And you have to yeah. oscillate between them. At well, the points. knock on public companies is that the yeah. quarterly, the quarterly pace, you know, causes them to underinvest in long term. Right. And the exception that shows the rule might be Amazon, right? But easy example lately, but I think always we have to choose those things. And, and even investors, you know, who are ostensibly long-term equity investors, they, they want you to have a long-term value, but they do want stuff right now. They want some traction now, some revenue now, lots of prioritization of now. And 
the hardest decisions we make that I make or that I make with my co-founders and board are about those times when we have to kind of hurt ourselves in the short term in it to invest in the long term or even worse are the ones where we feel like we can't man I really want to invest in the long term but I just need the win right now yeah I'm gonna take the easy one right now because it's less pain it's pain avoidance maybe mm-hmm. today and but that you have is to do that, right? crazy hard. You have to be, you have to become really rigorous at prioritization, yeah. shifting priorities. Yeah. But all of the investors, all the investors, all the executives, I don't, I mean, there are investors I respect as people who I've read about or whatever, but the people I benchmark to are other executives. The executives who I respect and who I want to emulate are people who are really patient mm-hmm. and, and are really comfortable with deferring their what is it deferring their gratification you know yeah. they, don't, they don't need to get in the paper today for a thing you don't need to brag about it as soon as it happens they're going to do it when it's good for their company you know we don't an example like i don't announce fundraisings at my company until they're good to announce like we're not in a hurry to get a high five from somebody mm-hmm. we are going to strategically advertise we're going to make news events when we can right. for our strategic benefit and that's just one example of that you know where there's always there are other people who would rather be you know in the paper than successful or that's its own form of success yep and i feel like it's my least favorite attribute in potential business partners it's the thing it's the thing i've learned to like screen for even in the past few years to a whole different degree um with potential investors potential business partners potential employees and executives like how patient is this person do they seem desperate for attention Mm -hmm. in a way uh, you know, and, and I got to say, like, if you're leading a company, it's completely cool to give people attention in the company. Yeah. You know, I I could have an employee who needed attention, give that person attention. But if you have a person who needs to be quoted in the paper about a thing. Potential red flag, right? It's tough. You know, yeah. I got colleges as clients. They want to tell their story. They yeah. can't have me out there doing a press release about them when they don't feel like having a press release. Like, they get to pick. We prioritize our college clients and their stories in our other clients, non-colleges. And I, I, you know, I hope every one of them feels like respected that way, but boy, have I seen that. It, it, and it's absurd. I mean, you can see it now. We see it in like, I feel like I've, as I, I'm saying this to an army vet, like in national defense circles sometimes where something happens and somebody wants to brag about how they did it instead of saying, gosh, let's stay quiet. Maybe we can use that trick again one day. Right, like there's all these things where the the, the tendency the need to, share, to be known, yeah, the need fact, to be known, the need for vindication, the need for acceptance, like, and then you know, so many people get on that treadmill of, along the way, they share every secret that they acquire, and it's like Bezos always talks about, like, you want to weave together a rope of small competitive advantages over time, but you want to keep weaving it together again and again and again. I feel like so many people, especially out in Silicon Valley, want to hit pause every month to share how I did it because the short-term vindication is there. You can get a million views on a post really quickly. If you say, here's how I made a hundred thousand dollars. Here's how I made a million, two million, like whatever the case is. But it's much harder to take that lesson to the team and start building your rope, you know, the proverbial rope. Yeah. And of course, it's not like you have to live your life in secret, right. you know, forever. Yeah. Eventually you sell the company or eventually the competitive moat erodes yeah. and you have a new one and you can talk about the old one. Yeah. You know, I think like I talked today, just now I talked about our focus on our customer and the management team we recruited. Those are moats today, but I, I am confident that somebody will copy that, you know, yeah. and they're going to pick the customer I have and they're going to event, somebody will cough up the money and they'll figure out our business is good and they'll hire a competitive management team. I'm working on the next couple of moats, right? Now Completely. I'm not talking about them today Completely. because I'm not, I'm not giving that out. But I, I think that, yeah, with any of these things, like these successes or the I just, I think it's patience. Mm -hmm. People have to be patient and know that, man, life will be fine. You're going to get to talk about it one day. Yep. And speaking about talking about it one day, there's two quick things that I I want to bring up and touch on. You take it real quick back to the pizza business. You started that with, you know, a six-figure investment. I'm willing to bet that you had to go through some serious sacrifices to actually build up that amount of capital to invest. Could you talk a little bit about the patience required to get started because oftentimes what stops people is i mean it's so hard to get started it's so painstakingly hard like as somebody who saved 
throughout you know two deployments and then I, I basically invested a huge portion of that money in my first ventures didn't pan out it's hard to do that right so getting started is oftentimes the hardest part so how did you get started to take it back there really really well, fast i went to naval academy for undergraduate school and so i was fortunate to not have student debt and i i began my career as a lieutenant in the marine corps i was in the field and deployed all the time similar story to yours my pay was modest. This is before all the pay bumps people mm -hmm. got, but but I basically didn't spend any of it. Yeah. And I was in a military town and I actually I started buying um, rental properties. So, oh, maybe this was before the pizza shop. Maybe this should be my first business venture. But the real business story. Buying rental properties. I got up to four or five, I think at 1.5 at a time. And I would, so I was using, you know, my money just enough to get a down payment, and, mm -hmm. like secure the property. And I ended up selling those in connection with my pizza shop losses um, in law school. <laughs> so I would say, you know, I w the way I did it though, I mean, probably not the way I would recommend it to others. I mean, I think it's okay. We talk about patience and deferring gratification, but I think it's cool to be happy every day and like mm -hmm. pursue some happiness while you're at it. You know, enjoy your time. I really, I mean, my kids have helped me be more present for that. You know, uh, my partner helps me be more present for that. And we just have like these great, the ability to enjoy my time now but when i was young i was like man none of this matters i'm just gonna sock away every dollar and so i was eating like peas out of the can tuna out of the can and that was it you know yeah. and, and like felt like i was building a thing that was really gonna pay, pay off it's kind of funny which makes it all the more funnier funny in retrospect that it it blew up and disappeared on the pizza shop, you know, because that's just years of my being a pretty insufferable person mm -hmm. over that stuff. And when I later married, I feel like, you know, my now ex-wife, like one of my major flaws was just nitpicking every penny that was spent, you know, yeah. because I was like, man, you know, we could save three bucks if we, <laughs> I don't know, fill in the blank, absurd thing. Yeah, that was, I took it way past being a virtue and I took it to where it, I cared way too much about money. And, you know, the worst part about it is it wasn't even a lot of money. Mm -hmm. so i don't i try now not to live my life with like money at its center but sure, i, I sure, actually sure. but but i did it honestly by caring way too much about money and trying yeah. way too hard and then you know I, I i was disciplined about it and i got advice from people i respected and levered it into these homes rental properties and it was cool i mean i i suppose i furnished housing for a lot of young families which is cool yeah i'm happy i got to do that and then later sold them liquidated them as it were yeah uh in, in connection with law school and the pizza shop I love that story. I mean, canned tuna, canned peas, like that's, I've done the sparse meals thing and it's like, you have to do it. Like there's no, if you go to the origin stories of most entrepreneurs, like there is that, there are those moments and like, they're not glamorous there. Sometimes you develop obsessive habits about saving money, protecting it, guarding it, but they might be the ones that get you through to the next stage, next level. And you can always scale back. And, uh, you know, this brings us to something that's very hard that I did want to touch on before we rap but when you were starting vimo too you went through a really really tough personal challenge you don't have to share all of it or anything but yeah. i do want to bring this up but you're founding a new technology company and then you also you go through a divorce that is not you know you didn't plan didn't plan for yeah here's here's how much I, that's true yeah i was so not planning to get divorced that i divorced a pregnant person so if you think about like you know from a christian background and I didn't actually used to believe in divorce, I should say, and I became a believer. But um, yeah, we. So I, I really used to have a couple of things. I used to have a hard time understanding, like, how do people make these hard decisions mm. with kids, you know? And then, how do they, you know, how they live with themselves? How do they make such a hard decision? What's it like to be around them? I mean, I used to think if I saw somebody who had a hard, I used to try to be loving to people. I tried, but if somebody had like. The kind of thing that I felt like me might be contagious, <laughs> like a tough situation with their spouse, I would try to be supportive, but I was like, I don't really want that in my family, man. Sure. You know, yeah. you keep that over there. And so this, yeah, this was uh, at the beginning of, of my company. This divorce started and it was tough. I had to, I mean, I was transparent with my, I, I basically assumed like, look, for all I know, people who work with me only like me because I'm like an upright guy who mm -hmm. who's who seems like he's got his life together. Now I have to go tell him I'm divorced. Maybe they won't want to work with me anymore. Maybe my investors will walk. Yeah. You know, uh, who knows? And so I had to go tell them all. I had to tell my board, 
investors, how to tell my co-founders, obviously. And it was hard. I mean, and, and these people had to not just, I mean, they didn't just, they not only supported me, which was a lovely experience. Like if you ever want to know, you know, if you really got sick, would, would you, people care about you or take care of you? Like I got to experience that. It's yeah. a pretty awesome thing. I know people who've, you know, had a serious illness or something else happened tragically and they get to experience like their family and community supporting them. And I got to experience that, which was fantastic. And then you think like level of support, I got to experience everybody firsthand. And then when you think about like, I was the CEO of this little outfit, even though I was the youngest member, youngest of the co-founders and least experienced. And they had trusted me to be their CEO. And these investors had put this money into this holy grail, never been really succeeded in business idea. And they trusted that even with that distraction and the broken heart I was basically carrying, that I would not let them down. Mm -hmm. And I would go through and make it work somehow. And when you talk about people balancing family demands with work, I mean, I think divorce is a uniquely difficult family demand. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, working out joint custody of kids and all that is really tough. And uh, I got to say, so my heart was broken for a while. And I, I, I owe it to, you know, Renee, Bill, Jeff, early investors and advisors who surrounded me with support and believed in me. Uh, to people who are facing something like that, I mean, there's never a great time for it. Yeah. You know, I hear people say sometimes, uh, I want to have kids when I'm not ready. Well, there's no, you're never really ready for kids either. Yeah. And there's things that are good and bad that you're never ready for. And so I, I don't think I would have, I could tell you there's a great time for something like that. <laughs> but I definitely picked one of the worst times for it. No, completely. Yeah. So uh, how did you start to work through that? You shared that with everyone. You started to get their feedback. They were, they provided support and everything. What was the process like to rebuild that and work in the new habits of shared custody and everything? Like how long did that process take? Because I think what a lot of people don't appreciate is that sometimes those life transitions take months, years to like, to fully like start to like normalize out. So how long was that transition? Oh, it, probably a year all in because yeah. we had, there, there, there's like the yeah children, you know, including a new baby. Yeah. And so- extra babies and that was awesome and then um those logistics took some number of months but then there was uh finances and and other you know personal affairs and how how, how are we going to resolve that and that that involved other people i mean not just me i mean think about where my net worth was it was mm -hmm. in my company stock my salary set by my investors you know and these are things that are important to mm -hmm. resolving the financial the financial disposition of a divorced couple. And so that took a long time and it, it was really delicate because I'm trying to talk to my investors about, you know, hey, you might have to testify at this thing or, you know, Jeez, you know, man. I have like a colleague at the company of like, hey, we need to make a discovery folder. You got to you got to set up all the things where people can see them. We have to be transparent about where, how much money we have at the company, where it came from. And I just couldn't believe it. I mean, if you could just imagine like being seen naked every day, you know, yeah. Like walking around naked. It's a great way to describe and discovery. Everybody's yeah. seeing like the, but like my colleagues, like they're this is like the hardest, toughest thing, and I can't, you know, I couldn't have any privacy. They they know they made it super. Again, I'm blown away by how supportive everybody was. But yeah, there was no hiding. I had no privacy on these really difficult things. And uh, Renee, what she said to me was, as it completely, my co-founder Renee, as it completely resolved, she said, "You don't know this, but you're." your body's actually internalized this thing and it's become a part of your biology. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's going to release from you a little bit at a time and it's going to take months. And she's like, you know, you watch six months from now, you'll actually sleep different. A year from now, you mm -hmm. will look different. I think she was right. I mean, it's been three years. I mean, she's, but th that's what I experienced also was that it was so... I didn't even appreciate at the time how much it can taxing it taxed my body. Yeah. There's a um, great book too that supports this. Uh, it's called The Body Keeps Score that I listened to recently, but it's oh gosh. Uh, all about this. But the body stores stresses, traumas in all kinds of crazy different ways. And you have to, for better or worse, process them over months and sometimes years. There's no there's no escaping the timeline of processing. There might be some ways to expedite it, but it takes time. Yeah. Does that go to like epigenetics? It does. Yeah. Wow. Uh, it, 
eventually it all like starts to go in, into that. But it's yeah, n- not easy by any stretch of the imagination. So I think it's like interesting for anybody that's listening that has gone through something like you have to have that level of patience to you know put one front foot in front of the other and keep going. So you did that though. I mean, you did that in a, in a major way because talking offline before the interview and getting to in our you know own small way with you know trying to help out with with Vimo and being a part of that success is exciting to see that some of the things you're doing every single day as a person that didn't like a lot of the incentives around higher education i can say like this is what i would have liked you know if this if this deal had been presented to me what basically what Vimo is providing i would have been excited about college i would have felt like there was somebody else that was like either looking out or planning for the future. So this is all really exciting right now. So what can you share? And yeah, what's next for you, for the company? So, well, Vimo, we, we, we have higher education institutions as clients. We started with some college alternatives and skills-based providers, as well as a couple of colleges. And it you know, everybody says it's about selling anything to colleges. It takes forever. And I think that goes to any business that sells to enterprise. Yeah. It can be hard. And so colleges are enterprise clients. We're trying to teach them to link what people pay for their for education to the value delivered mm-hmm. in terms of early career paths and and show them why they should do it. And we had the hardest time getting into them. And I sit here today having concluded 2018 with 15 new college clients. You know, that's wow. We had two coming into the year and we're looking at a blockbuster 2019. So I think we can share that I can share that this three-year journey here has resulted in product market fit. Yeah. With really important enterprise clients who we value. And at the same time, we're able to we and we've been able to help some other um great customers we really respect in alternative education. So think like co-boot camps, you know, Mm -hmm. we're really happy to see so many skills-based training providers standing behind what they teach students or what they offer to students and saying, you only have to pay if this works. So, you know, in our breakthroughs there, we're moving some real money into that. We had over 150 million committed from outside investors, not from Vimo, to our school clients Mm -hmm. in the skills-based space, uh, accelerated learning providers, because those accelerated learning providers, they're worth it. They're good. Their students want this. Yeah. You only have to pay if it works isn't a, a proposition that's going to go out of style now or ever. Like that is a, uh, an, it's an exciting promise, right? For trust for any industry. <laughs> yeah. And in higher ed or post-secondary ed, the question is just what does it mean to say it works? Yeah. And I think for for some, you know, it's not so simple, but for more than half of people in post-secondary ed, they're you know, veterans, they're adult learners, complicated lives, first generation who need upward economic mobility and works means they got a job. Yeah. And whether schools universally love that idea, it's definitely what's been sold to students mm-hmm. and the best schools are owning it. They're saying, you know what? That's right. We're going to do a lot for you. We're going to give you, we're going to broaden your mind and set you up to win long-term, but we're going to set you up to win right now also and to best colleges. And, and, who want to serve these people and they're, they're investing in it now. And so I think I talked about patience, you know, we can't talk about most of the deals we're doing yet. And in, in our, we find by the way, the best messengers by far for this, the best spokespeople are the schools doing it mm-hmm. and their students. So I won't say more, but it's been a great year. I feel very good about it. I'm really pleased with all the people involved with the company, you know, really grateful to the investors who've made it possible. But again, it's these, it's the school's who are doing this today, nobody's making them. They want to do it. They, they think it's the right thing to do. They're being proactive. Mm-hmm. And I just applaud that. I think, you know, if there were 15 this year, there'll be dozens and dozens next year because there are thousands of post-secondary ed- education institutions. And there's more than 200 of them or however many who are really motivated to do right by these students. Couldn't agree more. So, Tonio, we have uh, Thai food waiting. You have a big day tomorrow. I have to fly to New York right now. So thanks so much for joining us. And if there is anything that you want to leave listeners with, where should they find you at? Where should they learn more? Well, I like to share stuff that matters to me and the company on Twitter. I'm at Tonio Deso, D-E-S-O. I think things we touched on are caring for people and loving them where they are and like respecting people life's long and it all comes around. 
and you don't know when it's going to pay off, but it seems like it often does. It, plus relationships are their own, their own benefit, their own value. Being happy every day and uh, being patient. Love it. Wise words. Thanks everybody for listening and we'll see you next time. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.